0: Hello folks, welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. This is Will Aitchison, I'll be your host while we take a whirlwind tour through the last month's developments in the public safety labor world. Uh, First of all, I want to remind everybody of an upcoming seminar that we'll be having June 1 through 3 in Las Vegas at the Flamingo Hotel. We'll be doing a seminar on the rights of law enforcement officers. So if you haven't had your fill lately of topics like Brady, Loudermill, Weingarten, Garrity, and the like, uh, come join us in Las Vegas. It's going to be, I think, a very good seminar. All right, let me dive into uh, the incredible amount of things that I have to talk about today, um, only some of which I think I may end up getting through. The first one is marijuana. What is up with that memo you may have heard of from the Attorney General's office in New Jersey? This is a memo. We'll post it in our show notes, uh, a memo from the acting Attorney General of new jersey to all law enforcement chief executives this thing came out a couple of weeks ago uh, on april 13th and what it talks about is uh, the relationship between the law enforcement workplace no mention of firefighters here but the law enforcement workplace and marijuana legalization In November 2020, New Jersey citizens voted to amend the New Jersey uh, Constitution to legalize regulated marijuana, Uh, and for whatever reason, in this uh, memo, the Attorney General refers to regulated marijuana, the stuff that is legal, as cannabis. Uh, It's a term of art. And then a few months after that, in February of 2021, the New Jersey legislature passed uh, what's generally called enabling legislation. So they took the constitutional amendment and passed legislation that would contain procedures and filling in the details on the constitutional amendment. This Uh, enabling legislation was known as the Cannabis Regulatory Enforcement Assistance and Marketplace Modernization Act. No way am I going to say that again. Uh, The acronym is CREMA, C-R-E-A-M-M-A. Uh, and CREMA is actually fairly lengthy and talks about everything from uh, how you set up a dispensary and regulatory steps concerning uh, the, the growing and sale of marijuana. But there are some provisions in CREMA that deal with the law enforcement workplace. And in fact, uh, it's very, very specific that CREMA does allow law enforcement officers or forbids an employer from punishing law enforcement officers for the use of cannabis. Remember the distinction here. Cannabis is the legal form of marijuana as far as this memo is concerned. And the memo uh, goes into, at some length, that law enforcement agencies still can have a drug and alcohol-free workplace which prohibits marijuana or cannabis, whether regulated or illicit, at the workplace. But the CREMA does not, and I'm quoting, require law enforcement agencies to permit or accommodate the possession, use, or consumption of cannabis in the workplace or restrict the ability of an agency to implement a policy prohibiting cannabis use during work hours. So what if the law enforcement officer goes home and smokes a vape of perfectly legal cannabis oil? What then? What goes on? And in particular... What happened to the fact that marijuana remains at the federal level a Schedule I drug? Uh, And here's the way the AG ends up uh, resolving this. And I'm reading about three sentences at the end of this paragraph. Uh, Excuse me, the end of the memo. While marijuana is a Schedule I controlled dangerous substance under federal law, CREMA makes clear that no agency in this state may refuse to perform any duty under the CREMA on the basis that manufacturing, transporting, distributing, dispensing, delivering, possessing, and using any cannabis item or marijuana is prohibited by federal law. Such a duty under the law, here it comes, would include the agency's obligation to refrain from taking any adverse action against an employee because that person does or does not use cannabis items. And an employee shall not be subject to any adverse action by an employer solely due to the presence of cannabinoid metabolites in the employee's bodily fluid. Wow. So what do you do with all this? This is the attorney general of uh, New Jersey, albeit the acting attorney general of New Jersey, telling state law enforcement agencies, uh, you know what? You can't fire someone who is using a particular Schedule One drug that is forbidden by federal law, criminalized by federal federal law. The particular uh, substance in this case being a cannabis. What is an employer to do with that? Are we to reasonably accommodate people who test positive for cannabis on drug tests? It's just not at all clear. This is only a two-page memorandum. And I can imagine that law enforcement employers and labor organizations in New Jersey are just looking around at each other saying, help, what do we do? Are we going to have to completely change our policies with respect to recreational cannabis use? Seems like that's what the AG is saying. So uh, what are the reactions to this that have come across our desk? And we've seen several. Uh, But the one, and I appreciate uh, uh, Frank Conte, who's the president of the Port Authority uh, Police Benevolent Association of New York and New Jersey. I appreciate him sending us a a memo and allowing us to use this uh, memo, and we'll post it in the show notes as well. Uh, And the PBA, of course, is concerned that its members are going to be in some jeopardy Uh, Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. So the memo... Uh, would ostensibly apply to this employer. And uh, what the PBA advises its members is, you know what? You're still law enforcement officers. Uh, Schedule one drugs are still a felony under federal law. Uh, ignore the AG's memorandum. I'm translating what Frank had to say there. And I think that's really the cautious advice to take here. It may well be that the Attorney General's memo is going to carry the day. It may well be that we're going to see uh, a marijuana dispensary open up across the street from the Jersey City main police station uh, and officers who are getting off duty go in uniform into the dispensary and buy whatever they're going to buy. Maybe that's where we're going to go. And it certainly may be that that's you know, a more rational policy than what we've got right now. But for right now, I wouldn't take a chance with my job, uh, a chance that the AG of New Jersey is right on this. I am guessing that uh, New Jersey police agencies are going to continue to discipline up to and including discharge officers who test positive for uh, marijuana, excuse me, uh cannabinoid metabolites uh, in their bloodstream. And I, if I was an officer, I wouldn't want to be the test case here. I think I'd simply wait. Next up, let's go to Buffalo. Remember that five-second video you saw of a demonstration that was going on in the main square in Buffalo? Uh, this was a demonstration uh, about policing, and you saw a couple of Buffalo police officers push a 75-year-old man to the ground uh, during the protest. And, of course, I'm sure if you were watching any news channel, uh, you would have heard the expressions of outrage uh, that various commentators and members of the public had about that whole incident? How could those officers push that 75-year-old man to the ground? Well, the case has now been arbitrated. Uh, There's an odd system in Buffalo where discipline is not finally imposed until after an arbitrator weighs in, assuming the officer doesn't accept the discipline. Uh, And in this case, the city was proposing termination for two officers, Robert McCabe and Aaron Turgalski. Uh, They are the ones who pushed the 75-year-old man, Martin Gugino, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, uh, to the ground. Uh, And the city wanted to terminate them. McCabe and Turgalski were not willing to accept termination. Neither was their labor organization. And so the whole case went to arbitration, and this is the first time that we've really heard or seen all of the facts associated with this case. For most of us, uh, 99% of us, our image of that incident is that five-second clip for a video. And this arbitrator's decision, which goes into tremendous length uh, about what happened before and during and after that incident. This arbitrator's decision uh, gives you an entirely different picture of what, in fact, happened. Uh, And you know what? That's why we have third-party review of uh, public safety disciplinary cases. Some of these cases are going to be intensely political. And my experience has been the more intensely political an incident is, the more likely it is the employer will get it wrong. Most of the time, police, fire, corrections agencies get it right. Most of the time, the discipline they impose uh, is perfectly appropriate under the circumstances uh, where you'll see a union's executive board say, yeah, that's, that happened and that discipline is correct and we're not going to challenge the discipline. But there's a small number of cases where employers do get it wrong. And boy, I can tell you with assurance, the more politically fraught a case is, the more likely the employer will be to get it wrong. Okay, so what happens? uh, And let me start a little bit by talking about what happens in the arbitration opinion itself. And we're going to post the arbitrator's opinion in our uh, uh, show notes. But in the arbitration hearing, somebody didn't show up. Who was it? Mr. Gugino. I'm going to pronounce his name eight ways. Uh, I'm going to call him the 75 year old man so I won't get it wrong. He didn't show up. He was subpoenaed, but he disregarded the subpoena and did not testify at the hearing. Why? Well, who knows? Uh, I can just tell you, having had this happen several times during the course of my career, Uh, That's somebody who is ostensibly the victim of inappropriate police uh, behavior when subpoenaed does not show up because they don't want their testimony on the record because they've got a civil lawsuit that they are contemplating or uh, or they have filed, and they would rather not have multiple accounts of their testimony under oath. That may be what happened in this case, may not be, but I can tell you when you read the arbitrator's opinion, the failure of the 75-year-old man to show up, um, the arbitrator took that very, very personally. So what does the arbitrator hold? The arbitrator starts with uh, what the city described as a threshold question. And the threshold question the city posed was, did the officers have any other viable option than to use some sort of physical force uh, on uh, the 75-year-old man? And the city says, look, if there were options, then it would clearly be a violation of our rules for the officers to have used force. And the arbitrator says, okay, uh, let's take a look at that. Uh, For an option to exist, it has to be a, quote, viable, end quote, option, which the arbitrator defines as having a reasonable chance of success. So... Here's how the arbitrator analyzes that. And this is uh, all in quotes. And I just want to preface it by saying a curfew had been declared. Everybody had to be out of this square. It's called Niagara Square at this time. Everybody other than uh, police officers and others who were authorized to be there. So the arbitrator says, quote, The officer's mission was to clear Niagara Square of protesters, The officers in turn specifically had the duty of holding their place on the front line of the emergency response team and moving forward in a northerly direction in clearing Niagara Square. Thus, the officers didn't have the option of stopping and debating with the 75-year-old man who was clearly intent on confronting the line of officers. Indeed, the conduct of a detective sergeant in pushing McCabe, that's one of the officers, in the back to keep the line moving reflects the officer's need to keep moving. All credible evidence shows that the officers, independent of the order to clear Niagara Square, were confronted with an individual who walked directly in front of McCabe, ignored McCabe's directive to stop, came into physical contact with Torgalski's forearm with a cell phone some inches away from Torgalski's holstered weapon. Back to the arbitrator, quote, For their protection, in addition to the need to continue with a directive to clear the square, the officers did not have any viable option to have some sort of non-physical communication with Gugino the man. The arbitrator then moves on uh, to talk about what the officers were doing there and what uh, Gugino was doing there in particular. Gugino, uh, and this was nothing you saw on any of the news reports of this incident, uh, Gugino had confronted three other officers uh, in the minutes before this interaction occurred and pretty much told them, I'm here to get arrested. You're engaged in unconstitutional law enforcement, and I'm going to make my point by being arrested. Uh, The arbitrator also points to the fact that the local district attorney, the Erie County District Attorney, described Gugino's conduct as criminal and described him as a suspect. And the arbitrator looks at all that and says, Gugino is a guy who has, and I'm quoting, a propensity on his part to engage in some kind of confrontation with the police. Now to the heart of the issue. The force employed by the officers, quote, reflected no intent on their part to do more than move Gugino away from them. There is no persuasive evidence particularly when the journalist video this is that 5 second video you've probably seen is reviewed in its various frames there's no persuasive evidence that the officer sought to push or drive gugino to the ground gugino after the force was applied to him appeared to have not been able to keep his balance for reasons that might as well might well have had as much to do with the fact that he was holding objects in each hand or his advanced age. Officers on the emergency response team, this arbitrator says, don't have an obligation to engage in a debate or discussion with Gugino. In the end, uh, the uh, arbitrator says there is no basis for concluding that these officers violated the department's use of force rules. Now, to the important part of the decision, an argument we are seeing with increasing frequency. The city argued that without regard to whether the use of force was appropriate, the actions of the officers brought, quote, discredit and disrepute on the Buffalo Police Department and the city, And that that discredit and uh, disrepute warranted the termination of the officers. The arbitrator says, whoa, that can't be right. Quote, if accepted, the city's position would result in officers whose conduct was legal and in conformity with the department's rules on use of force nevertheless being disciplined because of perceived and vocal public opinion. That is simply not the standard to be utilized in a due process hearing. An employee cannot be disciplined based solely on existence of perceived and vocal public sentiment. If there is no violation of any rule or regulation, this charge cannot be sustained. It's an interesting case. I know I spent a lot of time on it, but I think it's a pretty important case because there are other cases uh, around the country right now arising out of the same series of protests in other states where officers appear, when you look at the video, to have done nothing wrong and yet are being suspended or are discharged because of the public's reaction, the public's perception, the public's view of a five-second video in this particular case. I think we're going to see this case cited in a lot of places around the country. I wanna move now to a fascinating uh, case out of a federal court in Indiana involving the city of East Chicago, which turns out to be in Indiana. Uh, Let me describe a little bit of the facts of the case and then get into what issues are posed by the case. Uh, So on December 4th, 2019, the fire chief, his name is Anthony Cerna, or was, he's now retired, of East Chicago, Acting at the direction of a mayor, I uh, issued a memo to firefighters saying, We're going to have a new schedule, new work schedule. What was the old schedule? The standard 24 on, 48 off schedule used by most fire departments in the country. Uh, what was the new schedule? It was an 8 24 schedule where a firefighter works an eight hour shift followed by 24 hours off, and then comes back and works another eight-hour shift. Yeah, that's what the new schedule was. And if you ever hear a schedule like that, that puts firefighters in the fire station seven days a week and constantly, every day, rotates their sleep time, disrupting their circadian rhythm, In this absolutely astonishing fashion, if you ever hear a schedule like that, you might want to think there's going to be a retaliation claim, and that's exactly what happened in East Chicago. Uh, There's no union that is involved. The IAFF does have a local, but the local doesn't have collective bargaining rights. Indiana, very hit and miss as to whether collective bargaining exists for public safety employees. So the firefighters can't file a grievance because there's no labor contract. So what do they do? They file a federal court lawsuit. Uh, And they claim that the new schedule was the product of their support for the opponent to Mayor Anthony Copeland in a recent election. Uh, And also, uh, it was in retaliation for their lobbying of the city council, uh, which was called the Common Council. The firefighters uh, took the extraordinary step of seeking a preliminary injunction. You've heard me talk about preliminary injunctions and TROs a lot lately in conjunction with vaccination cases. And uh, bottom line, they're very, very hard to get. Uh, you have to prove that there's uh, irreparable harm that will result to employees. And you also have to have to prove that there's no other adequate remedy at law. But this court grants the the request for the preliminary injunction. So what does the court say here? Uh, How does it go about this? He says, the court starts with, uh, let's assume the firefighter's activity existed, supporting the mayor's opponent, lobbying the city council. Is that protected under the First Amendment uh, to the Constitution? Is that free speech? And the court says, look, not everything a public employee says is entitled to First Amendment protection, but, quote, the firefighters' attempt to negotiate relief from nine years of frozen benefits and pay with the Common Council is plainly protected First Amendment activity. Uh, and uh, the court goes on to refer to uh, the nine years of stagnant wages and benefits, uh, including stagnant longevity pay, uh, the pay schedule, other benefits. The, the uh, court says firefighters were well within their First Amendment rights to lobby uh, the Common Council. And certainly supporting the mayor's opponent is protected political speech and free speech under the First Amendment. Now, the city argues, uh, look, there's less constitutional protection here because the firefighters uh, stood to personally benefit from their lobbying efforts. Um, And the court says, well, yeah, maybe they did, but it's still a matter of public concern that we have frozen wages and benefits for firefighters for nine years has got to be a matter of public concern. And the court says, quote, just because an employee has a personal stake in the subject matter of the speech doesn't necessarily remove the speech uh, from the scope of public concern, this is especially true when public safety is at issue. Uh, And the Uh, The federal court here focuses on uh, the mayor's own statements. Uh, Apparently, the mayor held a press conference and uh, made a Facebook post shortly after the 824-hour schedule was implemented. What did the mayor say it was related to? That it was uh, necessitated, this shift change was necessitated to prevent the firefighters from lobbying the common council. So in other words, the mayor's just, he's posting on Facebook. And as we know, Facebook posts are forever. He's posting on Facebook. I impose this schedule on them, this incredible 824-hour schedule, in retaliation for their refusal to sign an agreement that they wouldn't lobby the city council. And the court said, this is, in fact, a pretty easy case. Quote, I find that the firefighters have made a strong showing of likelihood of success on the merits. They engaged in First Amendment activity. That activity was a motivating factor in East Chicago's imposition of the 824 work schedule. And they suffered a deprivation likely to deter the free speech of others in the future. So like I said, interesting case. You've got kind of a quasi-union in that the IAFF is not acting as a bargaining agent, uh, but effectively bringing a claim in federal court under the First Amendment for activities that look a little bit like some traditional union activities, lobbying the city council. Interesting case. I'm going to finish up this podcast with a couple of cases that involve technology. No, these are not cell phone cases, although there's a lot more cell phone cases in the works in, uh, in kind of the wake of the Turiano versus uh, City of Phoenix case that I spoke to you about last month. Uh, but one of these cases is an Apple Watch case, and the other case... Uh, is a Dropbox case. And let's start with the Dropbox case. This involves Stephen Bowers, who's a sergeant uh, with the Taylor County Sheriff's Department in Wisconsin. Uh, In 2017, the Sheriff's Department started working with the TV show Cold Justice. Uh, You know, that's one of those true crime shows. This one has a focus on cold cases. Uh, the department gave the crew members for the TV show access to one case file, but Bowers decides they should see others. Uh, so he begins sharing other case files with the crew, even though he didn't have permission to do so. And uh, that this comes to light. Uh, Bowers ad- admits what he had done. And the sheriff, Bruce Daniels, directed the IT director, someone named Melissa Lind, to try to access Bower's Dropbox account where Daniels thought that Bower's had stored the files. Uh, Lind was able to do so because Bower's helpfully linked his Dropbox account to his work email. Yeah, that's what he did. So Lind gets into the Dropbox account Changes Bowers' account password. So now Bowers is locked out of his own personal Dropbox account. Uh, access the account, and she found the case files. Uh, Bowers sues. Now, we don't know what happens to him from this opinion, by the way, in a disciplinary sense. But Bauer sues, and he's saying, Look, you violated my Fourth Amendment rights. This is a search and seizure. You had to obtain a warrant before you accessed my account, before you changed my password, uh, and he sought damages for mental suffering, anguish, fear, humiliation, loss of personal freedom, and expenses. Sometimes don't lawyers just seem to go on too long with some claims? Any case, the federal court ends up dismissing Bauer's lawsuit not because the county didn't violate his rights. In fact, the court ends up finding that the county violated Bowers' rights, but instead because of the principle of qualified immunity. So let's talk about those issues, each of them quite separately. Uh, first of all, uh, what about the, the privacy rights under the Fourth Amendment uh, to be free from uh illegal searches and seizures. Uh, And the the court ends up concluding that uh, Bowers really did have an expectation of privacy, uh, that his Dropbox account wouldn't be searched by his employer. Uh, the court says, "Look, there's kind of an intersection of different areas of law here. Uh, one, the, uh, the Supreme Court case of O'Connor versus Ortega that deals with locker searches and desk searches, where employees have." a lower uh, expectation of privacy in those sorts of things. And then there's another line of cases involving electronic privacy outside the workplace, particularly Riley versus California, uh, the heightened privacy rights given to cell phones and the like. Uh, And the court ends up saying, you know, you put all this together, and I think we have to proceed on these cases on a a case-by-case basis. Uh, And uh, here's how the court analyzes the situation. The court says Bowers did take some steps to keep his account private from the county, uh, but linking the account to his work email blurred the boundary between his work and private spaces. Like, duh, right? But the court says the county's IT policy says nothing about monitoring private accounts that are linked to work email, In the absence of a clearer notice from the county, Bowers was entitled to assume that a private account was private. What about the fact that Bowers shared this private account? Uh, The court said simply by sharing the account with the TV crew and a friend doesn't mean that Bowers was inviting anyone to view his account. Here comes a sentence I absolutely love, and I'll bet the judge or the judge's law clerk loved writing it. Quote, By way of comparison, homeowners don't forfeit a reasonable expectation of privacy against intrusions by the police if they invite their friends to stay with them. Really good metaphor there. I applaud that. So uh, uh, the county violated Bauer's privacy. Why doesn't he win? Qualified immunity, right? Uh, In order for a public official to be held liable for a constitutional violation, the plaintiff, Bowers in this case, has to show that the law was clearly established. And the court says uh, it, it just wasn't clearly established. This is all new stuff. We don't have a big body of case law here. So uh, let me quote a couple of sentences with which the court ends its opinion. Uh, Quote, the precedental authority Bowers relies on uh, provides the general principles that provide the foundation for his claim. But that case law doesn't show that the contours of the law were so well defined that it would be clear to a reasonable officer in the county's position that Bowers had a reasonable expectation in keeping his Dropbox account private. In the absence of such a showing, defendants are entitled to summary judgment on the basis of qualified immunity. And you know when we've been having this kind of massive public discussion about qualified immunity in the context of suits against law enforcement officers, we've been having this discussion over the last two to three years, uh, and it's, it's commonly thought and discussed that a qualified immunity shields law enforcement officers who have done something wrong. Well, it shields all public employees, not just law enforcement officers, who are alleged to have violated the constitutional rights of any citizen. And any citizen includes other public employees. So here's a classic case where an employer violates the constitutional rights of its employee, but is not liable because of the principles of qualified immunity. All right, let's end up with the Apple Watch. Uh, this involves a guy named William Owens, who is the fire chief for the city of Monroe, Georgia. And in case you're wondering, I had to look this up. The population of Monroe, Georgia is 13,418. Uh, Logan Props is Monroe's city manager, and the police chief is a guy named R.V. Uh, Watts. So uh, those are our three characters in this case. Owens, the fire fire chief, Propes, the city manager, and Watts, the police chief. Watts and Propes learn that Owens had a intimate relationship with the apparently unrelated K.I. Owens uh, and uh, uh, I have to say the court used that phrase, apparently unrelated, K.I. Owens. So Owens, and I'll call her K.I., had regular communication uh, via their personal electronic devices, their cell phones, and K.I.'s Apple Watch. And in May 2020, K.I. goes to the hospital for surgery. K.I.'s son gets a hold of her Apple Watch Discovers communications between Owens and KI on the watch and promptly brings it down to Watts and Propes, the police chief and the city manager. Uh, Watts and Propes then share the communications with a bunch of other individuals. You just can picture all this stuff going on. And KI's son asks Propes, the city manager, to fire Owens based on the communications that he saw on the Apple Watch. Uh, Prope said, well, since you asked, okay, Owens, uh, you are fired. And uh, Owens then brings a Fourth Amendment lawsuit against the city saying you violated my Fourth Amendment rights by accessing the electronic communications that were on KI's Apple Watch. Now, of course, Owens, as a fire chief, even if he was in a bargaining state, uh, would not have any property right to the job. He wouldn't be covered by a collective bargaining agreement. Uh, But he is in a non-union state in Georgia, so he really doesn't have any rights except any rights that he might have under the federal constitution. That's why he's bringing a Fourth Amendment lawsuit under the Civil Rights Act. Now, here's the thing with these electronic devices or a thing with these electronic devices that I think everybody needs to remember. The Fourth Amendment is not absolute. There are exceptions to the Fourth Amendment. It is not in every case that a governmental body needs a warrant and probable cause in order to invade somebody's privacy. I mean, the classic case is that of exigent circumstances, right? I think the example we got in law school was a fire that's going on in the house. Police officers rush into a house in order to save somebody in the house and see the fruits of a crime uh, arrayed in front of them. They can seize that, right? Uh, that's not an illegal search of siege and seizure because it's one of the exceptions to the Fourth Amendment, that of exigent circumstances, the fire in the house. Uh, There's also uh, an exception for property that has been abandoned. Um, We've we've seen one of those cell phone cases in the last couple of years involving a police detective, I think he was in uh, Ohio, uh, who left his non-password protected cell phone with his estranged wife, who then gave it to her best friend who then gave it to the NAACP, uh, who then gave it to the city saying, you need to look into these racially tinned text messages on this officer's phone. And the court ends up saying no privacy interest in that phone because that property had effectively been abandoned. So there are lots of exceptions, not lots, but there are some exceptions to the Fourth Amendment where you don't need a warrant and probable cause. And you know what one of them is? if it's not your property that is being searched and seized. And that's exactly what the case is with K.I.'s Apple Watch and Owens. Here's a quote from the court. There is no allegation that Chief Owens owned, possessed, controlled, or had the right to exclude others from K.I.'s Apple Watch. Owens does point out that the Fourth Amendment encompasses an individual's expectation of privacy in his personal movements and thus protects against the government's warrantless acquisition of the cell site location information from the individual's own cell phone. That refers to a Supreme Court case decided a few years ago. But this does not establish that any individual has an expectation of privacy in someone else else's personal electronic device under the circumstances alleged here. Result, case dismissed. So, just a reminder, uh, electronic equipment is like any other type of property in this way, under the Fourth Amendment, and that is there will be exceptions. Exigent circumstances or abandonment or it's somebody else's property or in some cases maybe even a search incident to an arrest. There will be circumstances where an employer, public employer, does not need a warrant and probable cause to seize and search electronic equipment. But those are exceptions. I think it's safe to say that the rule now, as I mentioned last month and my long screed about Turiano's case, I think it's safe to say the rule now is a public employer may not access an employee's cell phone in a disciplinary investigation without the consent of the employee. employee's personal cell phone, without the consent of the employee, unless one of these very, very narrow exceptions applies. Well, that's it. That's the May 2022 edition of First Thursday. The sun is out on a glorious day in Portland after we've had record rainfall all April. We're looking forward to a great summer here. Hope you guys all have one as well. With that, this is Will Aitchison signing off.